0: made sense to us to uh, bring up the topic of right effort tonight. As you probably know from direct experience, not just in terms of your dharma practice or meditation practice, but even more generally throughout your life, the whole area of effort is a place where there's a lot of judgment, and comparing mind. How many times have we wanted to be the very disciplined together person who can bend the world to our will and make things happen the way we want them to happen. And then when we don't do that or we try to do it and it doesn't work, we feel a little bit inadequate. I didn't try hard enough, if only I were a different person. If only I were stronger, wiser, more together, then you know, my practice would look differently. So like the area of concentration, effort has a lot of baggage. I remember a long time ago, Joseph Goldstein saying in one of his Dharma talks, something like, I can understand the entirety of my practice, and I think at that time maybe he had been practicing for 30 years or something, as a deepening understanding of what, what right effort is all about. So maybe consider this as the beginning of a lifelong, practice-long investigation and, and maybe a sense of humility or respect for the topic of right effort so that we approach it with uh, just a sense that it's a challenge (laughs) to really understand what right effort is. I was uh, teaching a Buddhist studies course at Kama Meditation Center, where I teach a lot in Minneapolis, and we were looking at this third part of the Eightfold Path on Samadhi, which includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And when I was talking about Right Effort, I gave this homework assignment something like, and I also used it for guided meditation instructions. (laughs) It's not your usual instruction, but something like at the beginning of the sit, saying something to the effect, okay, we have this 30 minutes and you have all of your previous experience as a resource. So see what you can do in these 30 minutes to set emotion motion happiness. What can you do with your mind sitting here that will actually support a resonant happiness, sense of ease, sense of release? And to really start over in a fresh way with that investigation. What are the skillful ways to apply our mind to the task at hand, this mind-body life experience that's happening? What have we learned from our study and from our practice? What have we learned to do with the mind? And you probably know if you've done much study at all, of the Buddhist teachings, he makes a very big deal of effort. It's in a lot of those lists. And uh, some of you know that (coughs) right before he passed away, the last word spoken by the Buddha, this is a rough translation, but uh, life is uncertain, the world is uncertain, impermanent. Practice with diligence, with vigilance, Really apply yourself to the task at hand. Don't miss this opportunity. I always kid in a way, you know, when you're flying at 30,000 feet and you look out the window, and let's say you can see the ground, it's pretty clear as we're flying over the United States, let's say, that humans are capable of tremendous effort. I mean, you just see how the earth has been transformed by human activity, cities and roads and everything else, all the fields that have been plowed and forests cut down. I'm not saying this is good or bad. It's just an expression of human effort. So clearly we humans have the capacity to make effort, and we do it in all kinds of ways, you know, crossword puzzles and other ways we are, apply our mind to tasks. And what's interesting is some of those tasks are seen as being really noxious, like I really don't want to do it. Maybe, maybe now, maybe later in the retreat, you'll be lying there and generally for people as the retreat goes on, you need a little less sleep every day. and You might find that you're getting up earlier and earlier and you might notice a particular attitude oh not now I don't want to get up now (laughs) can not I sleep for a little longer it's not even that the bells necessarily ringing it's just the mind is alert but we don't want to do this work sometimes but if there are another task at hand you know even one that required a lot of physical effort a nice bike ride, or a nice swim, anything besides cultivating continuity of mindful awareness, (laughs) you might be very enthusiastic. Oh, we're gonna rake leaves? (laughs) We're gonna pick up rocks and move them? Okay. (laughs) It's always interesting to watch my mind and watch other people's minds when the yogi job comes around and just like, and it's not so much that we want to be mindful in the task as much as we just want to lose ourselves in something. We want to break from mindful awareness. So we want to look at our attitudes about efforting and what, because of habit, we see as something joyful or enlivening and what, because of habit, we see something, when we see something as a real chore, a burden. And it's really interesting to get a sense of what the mind is telling itself in terms of doubt. I think one of the reasons we don't apply ourselves to spiritual practice, to the practice of the continuity of mindful awareness, is one, we don't really understand what we're asking ourselves to do, asking the mind to do. And two, we've done it. You know, it's just, this is (laughs) our mind is. It's like, okay, I'm mindfully aware. So where's the payback? It's like we want instant gratification from a moment of mindfulness. So part of what we have to do in the practice is see the protection that comes by turning the mind in this direction, cultivating this way of being, this way of being more mindful, more receptive, more interested, more patient with the experiences the objects of experience that come and go and a lot of the uh, results they're there but they're often subtle more subtle than the result we get when we turn the computer on and get our favorite media outlet there and we get all the drama from the different articles that we start to read or maybe we just read headlines at this point (laughs) We're slowly moving in that direction. We'll never actually read a whole article ever again. We'll just gaze through headlines and get that immediate stimulation instead of uh, a different kind of response from life, a different kind of development of the mind. So the question is, what makes right effort right? What is it about effort that can be wholesome, that can lead the heart in the direction of release, the release of greed, the tension of greed, wanting things to be different than they are, the tension, contraction of aversion, and also, the more pervasive contraction of the mind not understanding, being confused or misperceiving what's going on. The Buddha's basic understanding of the problem of human existence that he came to understand through his own practice was there is ignorance. This ignorance is arising because of the mind misperceiving or not knowing the way it is. So it makes a lot of sense then that the, the, the basic approach to resolving the problem of human suffering is to address the problem of misperceiving, not knowing, not seeing clearly. So we cultivate this simple, clear, continuous, mindful awareness because it uh, undermines the habit of misperceiving. And all of this understanding, like how to understand what right effort, it really comes out of foundational wisdom, which in Buddhism we understand as a deepening understanding of karma, cause and effect, or intentional actions have consequences. So if we want to know how to apply the mind to the moment, to any moment, we have to have some sense of what happens when I apply my mind, use my mind this way, and what happens when I use my mind this other way. So maybe you're getting a sense, like what a wonderful laboratory we have here at IMS, these relatively quiet days, uncomplicated days. I know we make them complicated, but In the great scheme of things, it's pretty uncomplicated here, pretty simple. Most things are taken care of for us. And so we can really, through direct seeing, really see, okay, when I apply my mind in this way, when I am relating with this attitude, when I'm looking or paying attention to these objects of experience, with this kind of attitude, then this is what gets set in motion. This is how that is, and this is what gets set in motion from that activity. So this is what we mean by this law law of karma. We're really understanding that when the mind, it's not so much if I hit Deborah, there would be consequences. I mean, we get that already. <laughs> I'm revealing a little of my mind (laughs) an aggressive boy (laughs) two aggressive boys (laughs) that we kind of get we get these sort of obvious displays of unskillful action but it's much more subtle our mind is acting all the time in terms of what objects of experience are being noticed, and then with what attitude. For example, is there greed in the mind? Is there aversion in the mind or fear in the mind? Is there a superficiality in the mind? Sort of not really showing up 100%, not really being interested, but kind of knowing but not really interested. So because those attitudes, combined with knowing certain objects, Can will set in motion certain effects. And then of course we can do other things, apply the mind in other ways. We can actually hear the instructions over and over. We can feel hopefully in moments at least inspired by the instructions, what we've studied and read, what we hear on retreat, what we've come to understand through our, our own experience. So the instructions we give ourselves as well so that we try out other attitudes that we bring to the objects that the mind is paying attention to. And it's not just that we're doing that, but we're noticing what the effect is. Because of course, the whole progression of the path of practice, initially it feels like I had to work really hard to get myself to IMS, I have to work really hard to get myself up, to get myself to the sits, to the walking. It feels very personal, the kind of effort we make initially. But if that's all this path offered, we wouldn't be very, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be that interested in it. So the picture that's painted for us and the experiences that we have in practice is that It doesn't just, this work we're doing to be mindfully aware, it doesn't lead to us always feeling this personal burden to be mindfully aware. In moments at least, probably everybody in moments at least has noticed how the practice gets ahead of steam, some momentum. And it doesn't really need to be a person who's trying to be mindfully aware. It becomes, in a sense, the natural activity of the mind. The mind is naturally aware, naturally seeing what's arising, naturally understanding what's coming and going in terms of right view to some degree. It's just thoughts coming and going, just thinking being known, just sensation, just sound being known, just the natural activity of body and mind being known. And in that way, with right view, less attachment, less clinging, more ease and lightness and freedom. So there is built in to the practice a natural barometer. We just have to pay attention to it. You know, so part of practice is understanding the instructions and applying the instructions and being willing to start over and over and over again. And part of practice is, you know, in paying attention and having a continuity of mindful awareness to really see the results. And you know how it is we have a tendency, and, and it might even be wired in genetically you know, we're much, the mind seems much more keenly interested in threats and dangers than it is uh, than it is attuned to the experience of ease and spaciousness and uh, lightness of the heart. Sort of the positive effects that comes when there's more understanding of right view and more continuity of mindful awareness. But we wanna attune to that, not just is anger nearby or is anger active in the mind, is greed active in the mind. Those things tend to get our attention, but is there more space? I mean, we can look now after a couple days of practice And is the mind more nimble, more interested, like as objects of experience arise, is the mind more willing to connect, receive that experience, know it as it is, leave it alone, see that it comes and goes, less sticky than maybe it was on Friday or Saturday. So, one of the ways to, you know, just in terms of information, to work with this law of karma, cause and effect, in terms of better understanding effort, is in terms of understanding the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. Just a simple way to quickly get a sense of how the mind is. And a a really useful way, you know, we can ask questions out of this teaching on the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. Most of you know these two lists. They're just opposites of each other. So the three unwholesome roots, greed, anger, and delusion. So these motive motive forces in the mind of greed, anger, and delusion set in motion, contracted states of the heart and mind and body too. And fortunately there are the three unwholesome roots, non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. And this is a very simple way. I think later in the week, Steve will give a talk on the hindrances, the torments of the mind, and he'll go into more depth. But just beginning to see both and not to emphasize the unwholesome roots more than the mind's interest in the wholesome roots, even if they tend to be more subtle not so obvious or not so easy to see. So that's why we can ask. And maybe don't use the word non-greed, maybe ask some other questions like, is there in the mind now an appreciation for simplicity or an appreciation of letting go, letting be? Or an appreciation of generosity or giving away of good wishes, not needing what isn't here. So for example, some of you were walking just before the talk. You probably noticed it's a very pleasant evening. And you might, if if you had the mind to notice, besides being aware of the walking, but to be aware of the qualities of the mind like see that motive force of simplicity, of non-greed in the mind. And it, it motivates right effort, it informs right effort. Same with non-aversion or kindness. It really informs right effort or non-delusion. Like really understanding how essential it is that wise effort, right effort, be connected with a deepening understanding of right view. And as Steve mentioned last night, you know, right view is understanding that this experience of mind and body or these experiences that are being known are natural. They're all natural processes naturally unfolding according to many causes and conditions. So right view is just appreciating that. That's what non-delusion is, that clarity, that understanding, oh, this is just the mind unfolding here. And sometimes this mind that's unfolding here is quite beautiful and they're dominated by the wholesome roots of non-greed, non-aversion and non-delusion and sometimes this mind sometimes this mind that's unfolding here is dominated by the motive forces of greed anger and delusion and uh i'm not in control always or often or maybe never of what's actually arising but there is something that the mind can do with how it sees it like is it going to recognize that what's arising in our mind is a natural process. And then to notice, is it a wholesome, is it being motivated, is the force behind it greed or non-greed, aversion or non-aversion, delusion or non-delusion. Because that really gets us, gives us a sense of whether this force in the mind is a force to inform effort or whether it's just a force to be seen with wisdom with mindful awareness and left alone and if left alone it will be there for a while and then quite naturally like everything it will cease that difficult state of mind will come and then it goes thank goodness So this idea of connecting um, our effort with a deepening understanding of karma, how things work, it's really an empowering joy because it's the opposite of feeling helpless and fatalistic and that we somehow are doomed by the forces that are already at play that we don't seem not to have any control over Can you imagine if you think about some of those unskillful choices, efforts, actions you made in your life? And imagine, so maybe bring one or two to mind where you did something unskillful. Now imagine if in that moment there arose a question, whether it was an actual like language in the mind or just more of an intuitive sense, some kind of question like, is this skillful? Is what the mind is about to do skillful? What is it setting in motion? What kind of heart or mind is being reinforced? So if we just had that sincere, honest question arising, think about how, so many of our choices might have been different. This is what the Buddha recommended to his son, Rahula. There's a famous discourse. This Rahula is still a young person. He ordained, became a novice when he was very young. I think uh, after several years of, after the Buddha's awakening, maybe like seven or so years after his awakening, as he was wandering in Northern India, he came through the area where he was born, and his son, now seven or so, and his family said to him, it's time for your son to collect his inheritance. So the Buddha had him ordained as a a novice, because his teachings, that was the inheritance, what he had come to understand. And then a little later, maybe a year or so later, he gave him this talk, about basically asking that kind of question, but to do it continuously before you act, before you speak, before you think, you know, is what I'm about to think or say or do skillful or not? While you're thinking something or saying something or doing something, after you've said something, thought something or done something, we should have this ongoing question, this wise discernment, is the scuffle. And this isn't some intellectual activity, it's really more a combination of right view. When we understand things as a natural process, that means things are naturally unfolding, lawfully unfolding, and so with mindful awareness, why wouldn't the mind be interested in what's unfolding? What direction is this unfolding? And you see, this really helps us understand how effort can be made without this strong sense of me having to do the right thing. Because for it to be a natural process, for the development of skill and wise effort to be a natural process, moving more and more in the direction of effortlessness instead of more and more in the direction of me having to be even more responsible, because now I'm not only responsible on the gross, level of restraining myself from hitting and stealing, but I also now, now they tell me I also have to be responsible for every little leakage in my mind, every little aversive, greedy, deluded tendency in my mind. Well, that just seems like too much. It's like, you know, we just wanna go watch TV or something, you hear that. (laughs) And people have that sometimes when they're hearing the instructions about vigilance and about the danger of greed, anger, and delusion, it can feel a little overwhelming. So we have to we have to get at the same time the teaching on karma and the teaching on right view the that it's all a process, a natural process, an impersonal process. So it's really a matter of how this activity we call practice can affect this natural process of mind and body, or they, more in particular, the natural process of the mind, how the mind is understanding. So it begins to shift from a mind that's governed by wrong view, and then unskillful actions that naturally, lawfully flow out of wrong view, because that's what flows out of wrong view, wrong action, unskillful actions, thoughts, words, deeds, and wise view and wise actions, wise thoughts, wise words. They'd flow out of that. So we're not, (coughs) we don't come without any support. You know, just the fact that you were attracted to signing up for a nine-day retreat I mean, there are some very impressive forces at work in your mind. One of these, one of the ways uh, these positive forces are described in the tradition, these two terms, hiri otapa, kind of conscience or a, a wholesome regret. It's in a way, it's the way the past informs the present moment. So there's a force in my mind and all of our minds, and it's a wholesome um, conscious consciousness being um, uh, full of concern, for the integrity of the mind, for the wholesomeness of the mind. And it's only, you know, the force of that that moral force is only as good as it is in any moment. but it exists because no matter who we are, we've, this mind, this mind stream or whatever you want to call it, it's learned a few things. You touch the hot stove, you get burnt. If you're mean to everybody, nobody's going to want to hang around you. You know, if you uh, let your mind do too many things, you're going to have a headache or you know, you're gonna feel discombobulated after a while. So we've, to whatever degree we're paying attention, we've connected, the mind has connected the dots, and then that cumulative experience has an effect. It, it lives on in the mind. It's like, uh, I remember last year Deborah gave a talk about the practice in terms of gathering uh, data and The practice mindful awareness is learning how to do that in a very efficient and even way so we're not burning out. So we can be just day after day, moment after moment, connecting with what's arising. And those data points, if we do it with some continuity, it strengthens this sensitivity, this conscious, the sense of concern, the sense of moral integrity, really wanting to take care of the mind. And this is something that we can actually, and I think should articulate to ourselves, because it's, it's pretty easy for us to articulate, like, I should be concerned about my kids, or my family, or even this earth. People have really a strong or highly developed sense of concern for the earth. But how many of us have a strongly developed, a strongly refined concern, care for the mind itself? And not just the mind theoretically, but this mind right here. You know, the mind that's showing up in this moment. I mean, imagine if this mind, if we had the sense that it was a two-week Uh, year old child you know we'd be like all over it really you know really attuned to its needs and uh, taking care of it and anticipating and the more we understand the relevance of the mind in terms of creating suffering not only for ourselves but ripple effects to those we care about and everybody else in the world we really see this potential for danger and the potential for release and we get really interested in the mind this also informs this understanding of karma and uh, i'm sorry this understanding of right effort some of you know one of the stories that's told in the tradition that I think is really useful. Who knows you know, whether it's historically true, but it's just a very skillful story about the Buddha going from being a young prince with a lot of wealth and comfort to becoming um, a wandering ascetic in search of deeper understanding He's, uh, the story is called The Four Heavenly Messengers. Many of you have heard it. I'll, I'm not gonna go into great detail. But basically, as the story goes, the Buddha came to understand four things about his mind. One day he was being driven around. And he was a very sheltered person, as the story goes. Didn't see a lot of the world. And there he saw somebody who was sick. And because he was a very sensitive person, mindfully aware in that moment, that experience of just seeing a sick person made a real imprint, impact on his mind. It was like a powerful data point. And it said that he lost the vanity of youth at that time. Like, whatever vigor I have, I can't count on it. And then the next day he went out and he saw an older person. Oh, he lost the vanity of health. Sorry, I got a little mixed up there. So he saw a sick person and that made a deep imprint and he lost the vanity of health. Like, the health that I have is something I can count on. Which he had just, you know, like we do, superficially assume I'm healthy. We don't expect it to go away until it does. And then the next day, you see where this is going? So, an elderly person really let it in, lost the vanity of youth. Third day saw a dead person, really let it in, lost the vanity of life, that of uh, immortality. And not that we think, if someone asks us, "Are you going to live forever?" We wouldn't say, "Yeah." But the fact is, uh, for many of us, we don't. It doesn't occur to us that this life is impermanent. So you, you might just feel even just hearing the story, how it raises the energy, like, so I can't count on health and youth, whatever youth I have, and life. So it really strips away a lot of the mental activity, which is the efforts we make, really based on this idea that we can bank on these things. But when we realize we can't bank on these things, then we start making a different kind of effort. So instead of the effort to acquire, to hold on, to get rid of, we start being interested in efforts to understand. And that's really what the Buddhist teaching centered on. So when people are beginning to appreciate renunciation. So we're letting go of those other efforts to acquire, to get, to hold, to have this physical security, knowing that it's one of those things that comes and goes. So we renounce that. We don't say, I don't want any physical security. I don't want health. It's not that. It just means our whole life isn't about acquiring or shoring up those things. And so then we're willing to make the effort to sign up for a nine day retreat at IMS, make the effort to get out of bed in the morning, make the effort to sit, to walk, to notice what the mind is knowing, to remember the possibility of right view, like to remember, oh yeah, the Buddha says this is a natural process. It's just the activity of the mind coming and going, the activity of the body coming and going lawfully. So can the mindful awareness, can it connect or know informed by right view? What is that? What does that set in motion? Can that be sustained? Can that way of being, that way of knowing, be sustained. What gets in the way? Is that an unwholesome root? One of those motive forces that causes the heart immediately to get tight, makes it more likely that the heart, mind will get tight down the road. And you see the understanding, seeing those tendencies over and over again, changes the mind. We don't have to sort of be the scolding parental force in the mind. This is what we sometimes think. Simply gathering the data points with wisdom, with right view and the continuity of mindful awareness, it begins to change. So the next mind that knows the next moment it's experience has been informed by whatever The previous minds have learned through simple mindful observation. From this point of view, it's just stuff coming and going, causes and conditions, process of mind and body some stories from the suttas about how the desire for happiness, the desire for release, isn't actually the cause for release. I'm assuming some of you have really learned this. I have definitely learned this. I remember as a kid, you know, just like really wanting something and then finding that it doesn't really change things. I remember distinctly, I must have been when I was five or six, Christmas, you know, walking down in the morning to see my presents. I really wanted some things and they weren't there. And I I had enough, whatever, space in the mind that I made the connection. Like I really saw, I was beginning to see and it was so, it felt like a betrayal. I thought, you know, just in the way that we superficially think that if I really wanted something that somehow that was related to getting what I really wanted. Same thing with fear and aversion, like really wanting to get rid of something, really wanting something to go away, doesn't make it go away. So that's a very superficial kind of effort, sort of wishing wanting, imagining instead of an effort that comes out of understanding, understanding how it is that things come to be, how it is that things go away so that we can go to work. This is from Saita Utejaniya, really important teacher in our community. He says, a mind which is striving toward a goal which is focused on achieving a certain result, is motivated by greed. Now, how many sits have we had where we were striving towards some goal, like just wanting the tension in the body to go away? I remember I did a three-month retreat. Uh, I did, I've done a couple, a number of three-month retreats, but one of them, I remember distinctly being in the walking room right behind us, and uh, I was just having all this unpleasant, sensations in my mouth. And just probably decades, maybe lifetimes, who knows, of holding tension, you know how we hold tension in our bodies in different ways. And so being in the middle of the retreat, my mind was more sensitive and so I was very aware of this tension and I didn't like it and I wanted it to go away. And I had a few tricks up my sleeve, you know, I knew something about, oh, you're supposed to pay attention to unpleasant sensations, and but the motivating force was greed i wanted something to happen and it didn't happen and uh, it's a real important lesson when we don't want to miss that greed doesn't lead to release greed leads to tension aversion leads to tension delusion leads to tension they're contracting forces not only immediately in the heart, body, mind, but also setting emotion motion down the road, tendencies for the heart, body, mind to be contracted. And then we really understand in a more direct, immediate way the value of the instructions we've been getting since day one, which is can the mind be aware of the way it is? understanding it's just this now, this is how it is. Can this be okay? So the release doesn't come because all of a sudden the experience is pleasant. The happiness that comes from right effort is the mind understanding that it's not helpless. So in that example, the mind understood a way not to add not to complicate what was already a stressful or an unpleasant experience. How to just leave it alone. Remember, leaving it alone doesn't mean ignoring it, and it doesn't mean trying to fix it. So ignoring isn't the opposite or isn't the correction to wanting to fix it or wanting to make it go away. Because ignoring usually means that we feel helpless, we give up, It's not a skillful redirecting of the mind. It's more of a delusion, like if I just pay it, if I just pretend it's not there, it will go away. I mean, sometimes that happens, which is why it seems like a a useful strategy. But things go away when the underlying causes aren't there anymore. And so it isn't a matter of whether I'm paying attention and trying to fix it or just wanting to ignore it because it's unpleasant. It's really understanding how the mind works. What really helps? What doesn't help? Some of you maybe have heard this discourse, I like this, even though it's a little, maybe hard to understand, but this is a time when the Buddha was teaching an angelic being, evidently, this is part of the stories from the suttas late at night some of the more refined beings in the cosmos would come visit the Buddha asking for some instructions and uh, one time late at night one of these beings came and asked the Buddha tell me dear sir how you crossed over the flood the flood was a image used quite a bit they remember the Buddha taught on the Ganges floodplain so that was the local natural disaster, the great fear would be in the middle of the night, the river would rise and sweep the village away. So that term is used to describe the habits of mind, the uh, unwholesome habits of mind that sweep the mind away so the mind becomes unaware, not wise, caught up, attached, identified. So um, how did you cross over the flood? And the Buddha responded, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. So the person, the being, didn't understand that answer. But how did you cross over without pushing forward, without staying in place? And I love this answer the Buddha gave. When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. You see, it's just cause and effect. He's really distilling his Karmic understanding of what he learned by watching his own mind. When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. You know, when I deer in headlights, I don't know what to do. That's not going to resolve our human predicament of greed, anger, and delusion. So by not pushing forward and not staying in place, that's how I crossed over the flood. So he doesn't tell us what to do as much as he tells us what not to do. But that's, remember, what we're doing is we're correcting this mind. This mind is a natural unfolding. And so we need to see that pushing forward doesn't work. How do we see that? Through the continuity of mindful awareness because the tendency for trying to control our experience it's going to arise. How many times today, forget about all the times we didn't notice, but how many times today did we notice the mind being controlling? A lot, right? (laughs) And if there was enough continuity that your mind noticed the controlling tendency, let's call it aversion, and the result, contraction, pain, less clarity, less confidence, and, and basically connected those dots, then the practice is good. Because that's all we have to do. We have to see what happens when aversion is the mind. What does it set in motion? Same thing when kindness is present or renunciation is present. And we see what that sets in motion in the mind, how things go more easily. And we connect those thoughts. And it changes the mind. Because the next mind, like I said earlier, is the mind that knew the previous moment, that understood the connection. So it's a different mind. It has more understanding now. And on and on and on like that. So little by little, the mind, the tendencies of the mind become transformed through this process of mindful awareness. I read an article a while back by Ajahn Tanisaro. He's a well-known scholar and teacher, Buddhist monk, um, abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego called Wat Metta. Wat is just the Thai word for monastery. Metta is loving kindness. And uh, he has a wonderful article, Joy and Effort. I just want to read a little bit here. often you hear that there are two ways of approaching meditation. One is to put in a lot of neurotic, miserable effort. (laughs) You stress and strain with your heart firmly set on the time someday in the far distant future when you're finally become awakened. The other approach is to realize that the Dhamma is all around you in the present moment. You just relax into the present moment, and there you are. (laughs) So... He's making fun of both of these, in case you're in favor of the second. <laughs> he does He does support the sort of relaxation. In the moment you realize you've been making wrong effort, then relaxation is the appropriate response, what he's calling relaxation, at least. Like, okay, I know what I'm doing is not working, so just relax. Let's... let's Get clear let's get more clear about what's going on and he gives the example of you know trying to milk the cow by sc- squeezing the horn or s- pulling on the tail you know it's like that's not the time to try harder right when we're, <laughs> when we're doing the wrong thing just striving working harder isn't going to help and isn't that what we do sometimes like life isn't working so we try harder like I see this in my relationship sometimes with my wife, you know, and there's some problems. And so I'll just be more of who I am, you know, except with more intensity. Have ever found like, they're not getting what you're saying, so then what do you do? You say it louder, as if that's somehow <laughs> going to make a difference. So we have this tendency um, to fall into one of these two camps of just really wanting it to go away, wanting the problem of life or whatever that problem is to go away. And so if I just pretend it isn't here, I don't, or pretend I don't have to do anything, well, it's not really a problem after all. Human existence isn't a problem after all. And that takes a lot of work, actually, to, you know, to delude ourselves about the, the real problems that our mind creates for itself. So his response, in case you're interested, it's possible to enjoy putting effort into the practice, to thrive on challenges, to realize that there's a mature way to relate to the goal of awakening and actually get there. You realize that yes, the experience of awakening is is not here yet, it's someplace in the future. But to get there, you have to focus on here, and focusing on here is not just a matter of relaxing. There's work to be done, and he gives this example that his teacher gave him, Ajahn Lee, one of his teachers, and about uh, getting fresh water from salt water. And you might know this, but you know the distillation process. You're letting, you're creating some system, maybe heating up the salt water, and it evaporates and then it condenses somewhere and drips down into a different vessel, and then you have water that's not salty. And that's the example his teacher used for this process, like we have to bring something in, right? If we're gonna change the cycles of suffering, what we call samsara, so being insensitive, being superficial, being distracted, and because of that, not seeing things as they are, Not seeing things as they are means we're ignorant. And so we act based on misperception. So our actions aren't very skillful. And they cause a lot of problems. And we have a lot of remorse and confusion because of all the problems we're setting in motion. And the mind is disturbed by all that remorse and distraction and agitation. So we're less clear, less understanding of what's going on and on and on like that. So we have to add something to that. If we just leave it alone, it's just going to keep repeating or replicating itself. So instead, we make this effort to be mindfully aware. And he talked about, later in this article, he talks about all the different senior teachers that he came across in his years when he was in Thailand, training in Thailand as a young monk. And uh, and even though they had they all had different personalities he talked about the one thing they shared was this real joy this uh, in problem solving understanding the mind and being ingenious about using ingenuity to figure out like how is it that the mind is supporting suffering how is it that the mind can be released from the suffering It's amazing when you watch children—not always, <laughs> but sometimes—it's amazing how ingenious they can be, making, bringing something alive, even when they have, you know, not a lot of fancy equipment, fancy toys. How they can get interested in things. And so we need some of these qualities in terms of looking at the mind. We have to find a way to be inspired to look at the mind. And I'll just end the talk by mentioning the fourth heavenly messenger. So I mentioned the first three. The Buddha saw uh, a sick person, an aging person, a dead person. And that motivated him. Like, I'm not immune from those three things. And then the fourth day he went out, as the story goes, he saw a monk or an ascetic, somebody who had left behind, sort of worldly pleasures, to some degree at least, and the Buddha saw somebody that was finding some real joy in the simplicity of their life, not feeling burdened by the simplicity, but feeling really light because of the simplicity. And that, in in this tradition that we practice in, one of the roles of monks and nuns is to be a living example or a living symbol of renunciation. So, to, Not that we have to become celibate or leave behind our possessions so much, although to some degree coming on retreat, this is a big part of what we do. We leave behind choices and possessions and loved ones. But it's more about this inner renunciation and the beauty of that renunciation like it's a symbol for this internal process of the heart letting go of wrong view, misunderstanding, being willing to let it cease because the data no longer supports it. It isn't a conscious decision to put down wrong view. It's a natural occurrence when the mind, through the continuity of awareness, just has a lot of good data And wrong view doesn't make sense anymore. Taking things personally just doesn't make sense. So in a moment, the mind just releases wrong view. And then right view is what's left. Right view, in a sense, is the absence of wrong view. So this can be a real motivating force for us, is to um, have this deepening appreciation for letting go or renunciation. Or that happiness, the happiness of release, the happiness of letting go, by definition, isn't dependent on anything. We don't need something for that. And even as a concept, there's sort of a a breath of fresh air with that teaching, with that pointing out. And so as we make effort, that can uh, motivate practice this possibility of the heart's unshakable release, no matter the conditions. So it doesn't require any particular condition. So let's just sit for a moment, let go of the words.